The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 4th. In today's news, Vice President Pence says any American can get tested for the coronavirus if a doctor orders it. President Trump speaks by phone with a leader of the Taliban. And the Supreme Court will hear arguments today in a case that could roll back Roe v. Wade. But first, the big idea. Joe Biden swept the South and did surprisingly well in New England and the upper Midwest on Super Tuesday. He appears poised to seize control of the Democratic presidential race and overtake Bernie Sanders as the delegate leader. Sanders is on track to win California, the state with the biggest delegate hall of the primaries, although votes are being slowly counted there. But Biden's victories in Texas and eight other states threatened at a minimum to erase the lopsided delegate advantage that Sanders hoped to gain from the day. The results set up a more vigorous fight ahead that presents the party with divergent choices, a two-man race between a pragmatist vowing a return to normalcy and a populist promising a revolution. Sanders easily won his home state, Vermont, and carried Colorado and Utah. But Biden's victories were significant and widespread, with a string of states across the South offering an early confirmation that his win three days earlier in South Carolina had swiftly and dramatically reshaped the contest. Biden was winning by double digits in the states of Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Alabama. He also won Minnesota, which Sanders had thought he would win, plus Oklahoma and Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren finished a humiliating third place in the state she represents in the Senate, trailing Biden and Sanders. In states where Biden spent little money and no time and had few field offices, he won as late deciding voters rushed to support him. Even in a race that's been marked by volatility, the results capped a head-spinning 72 hours. Just days ago, Sanders appeared to be en route to a potentially insurmountable lead in delegates after his near win in Iowa and victories in the second and third contests, New Hampshire and Nevada. Biden seemed on the verge of being forced from the race after successive fourth, fifth, and distant second place showings. But after his mammoth victory in the Palmetto State, moderates coalesced behind the former vice president, rivals dropped out and endorsed him, and he racked up margins of victory so large that several of Tuesday's races were projected as victories immediately after the polls closed. His win in Virginia testified to the rapid reversal of his fortunes. Despite having held only one rally there and opening only one field office and spending far less than all of his main rivals, Biden was on course to win every congressional district and carry the state in a landslide. As soon as polls closed in North Carolina, a state with a strong dose of suburban women and African-American voters, both targets for the party and groups that lean toward Biden, he was declared the winner there as well. His quick wins in Alabama, Arkansas, and Tennessee were also largely powered by big margins among women, black voters, moderates, and those without college degrees, all key parts of the Democratic coalition to retake the White House. He also appeared to benefit from high turnout in the same kinds of suburban areas that helped Democrats win the House majority in the 2018 midterms winning by massive margins in the suburbs around Richmond and Washington, D.C. In fact, turnout in Virginia was almost double what it was in 2016, and it exceeded 2008 levels. 
Late deciders across the country, but especially in Virginia, broken a major way for Biden. Half of Democratic primary voters in the Commonwealth said they made their decision in the past few days. Biden won six in 10 of them, compared with only one in six for Sanders. And it was a terrible night for Mike Bloomberg. After spending more than half a billion dollars, his only win was in the caucuses in American Samoa. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii, a native Samoan, also won a delegate from the U.S. territory in the South Pacific under current rules that could allow her to qualify for the next debate, although the Democratic National Committee indicated last night that it will increase the threshold to keep Gabbard off stage in two weeks in Phoenix. Bloomberg and Warren will face immense pressure to end their campaigns after their performances last night. And for the foreseeable future, the calendar will not get easier for Sanders, which is a big gain for Biden. In the coming weeks, the states holding contests, with some exceptions, are ones that he lost to Hillary Clinton four years ago. In some of the states that he won in 2016, the shift from caucuses to primaries could hold down his delegate totals even if he wins again. The marquee primary a week from now, next Tuesday, is in Michigan. Sanders scored a big upset there four years ago over Clinton, although his victory margin was narrow. Also on the calendar next week is Missouri, a state Sanders lost by less than a percentage point and where the delegates split almost evenly. Missouri will provide another test of Biden's and Sanders' support among African Americans who make up about a fifth of the Democratic electorate in that state. Because Washington state has switched from a caucus to a primary, Sanders, though favored, will have a more difficult time piling up the kind of delegate margin he did in 2016. Meanwhile, Mississippi, one of the five states that votes next week, should be fertile ground for Biden. African Americans made up about 70% of the Democratic electorate there in 2016, even more than in South Carolina. The round of primaries on March 17th, the following week, includes Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio. Sanders lost Florida badly to Clinton and will face serious resistance again this year because of qualms about his democratic socialism. He also lost Arizona and Ohio decisively four years ago. Only Illinois was close, though Sanders was on the losing side there as well. A week after those contests, on March 24th, Georgia holds a standalone primary. And there again, Biden will be favored based on the size of the African-American vote. That's why we feel safe describing Biden as the new frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one. Vice President Pence's announcement yesterday that any American can get tested for coronavirus if a doctor signs off perplexed some public health experts because physicians already have discretion to order testing. The announcement raised questions about whether the government can rapidly accelerate the production of testing kits, as well as how much patients will ultimately have to pay for getting tested. Pence said roughly 2,500 testing kits approved by the CDC should be distributed by the end of this week, primarily to hospitals in affected areas, as well as to others that have requested them. Those kits collectively represent about one and a half million individual tests. Seema Verma, the administrator for the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, said testing for the coronavirus will be covered under Medicare, Medicaid, and healthcare exchanges established under the Affordable Care Act. But it remains unclear how the costs will be handled for the estimated 27 million Americans who are uninsured. Meanwhile, Washington state confirmed three additional fatalities, bringing the total to nine. Overall, the U.S. has reported more than 100 confirmed cases. The previously unreported deaths were former residents of the Life Care Center of Kincaid, a nursing home facility that's emerged as the epicenter of the outbreak in that city northeast of Seattle. 
Meanwhile, North Carolina reported its first case of coronavirus, bringing to 14 the number of states with confirmed infections. New York disclosed its second case. Governor Andrew Cuomo described that patient as a 50-year-old man from Westchester County who worrisomely had no recent history of foreign travel. Back here in Washington, Trump's coronavirus response continues to be undermined by mixed messages and outright falsehoods. The White House is handling the rapidly expanding coronavirus as a public relations problem rather than a public health crisis. Officials in the West Wing are insisting on message discipline among government scientists and political aides alike. Part of what they say is a responsible effort to calm jittery Americans and provide uniform information. But Trump is privately griped about what he considers to be hysteria from his own public health officials and the media, and he's trying to clamp down on that. Across America, the virus continues to trigger cancellations and closures. Yesterday, Trump criticized contingency plans being considered by the NCAA for the March Madness basketball tournament. The NCAA is considering a proposal where all the games would be played in empty arenas. But with the lack of a coordinated national approach, local officials and individual communities are rushing to make their own plans. Some schools are considering closures. Some companies have implemented restrictions on travel for employees and religious organizations are altering how they conduct services. Number two, Trump spoke with a senior leader of the Taliban by telephone. This was apparently the first direct verbal communication between an American president and the Afghan insurgent force since the Afghanistan war began after the attacks on 9-11. Trump confirmed the Taliban's announcement, which was made over Twitter, that he had spoken by phone with Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar, the Taliban's top political leader. The president called it a good conversation. Baradar is a senior figure representing the insurgent group in talks with the U.S. in Doha. The phone call is notable for the stature it confers on Baradar. U.S. presidents typically deal directly with other heads of state. But in a statement, Baradar quoted Trump as saying the Taliban has been, quote, fighting for your country and the time has come for the United States to leave. The Taliban said Trump also pledged to them that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will speak to Afghan President Ashraf Ghani to, quote, remove hurdles in the way of intra-Afghan dialogue. Then, overnight, the Pentagon announced that the U.S. military has conducted an airstrike against Taliban forces in southern Afghanistan. This was the first U.S. strike against the militant group in 11 days, and it was to counter a Taliban assault on Afghan government forces in the Helmand province. And in other Middle Eastern news, Iran has sharply increased its uranium stockpile since Trump blew up the nuclear accord. A new report from inspectors at the International Atomic Energy Agency says that a near tripling of Iran's stockpile of low enriched uranium has happened since November. Their total holdings are now three times the 300 kilogram limit that had been set under the 2015 accord. Iran also substantially increased the number of machines, centrifuges, that it's using to enrich uranium, allowing it to make more of the nuclear fuel faster. Iran's low-enriched uranium, the kind typically used in nuclear power plants, would have to undergo further processing to be converted into the highly enriched uranium needed for nuclear bombs. Independent analysts say, though, that the bigger stockpile and faster enrichment rate has substantially decreased Iran's theoretical breakout time. That's the span needed for acquiring enough weapons-grade material to build a nuclear bomb. Number three, 
Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, no state has passed more abortion restrictions than Louisiana. Today, a repopulated and much more conservative Supreme Court will consider whether to uphold one of those laws. Activists on both sides of the issue believe this could be the vehicle to roll back abortion rights in America. Abortion providers say the Louisiana law would force two of the state's three abortion clinics to close by requiring difficult-to-obtain hospital-admitting privileges for doctors who perform abortions in clinics. It's hard to overstate what a decision about this law will reveal about the Supreme Court and its jurisprudence on reproductive rights. It will be the first time the two justices selected by Trump, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, confront the merits of an abortion case on the high court. It also marks a key moment for Chief Justice John Roberts in his pivotal role at the court's center after Anthony Kennedy's retirement. But Roberts has never once voted against an abortion restriction during his years on the bench. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 4th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.